going to be speaking of the area of spiritual warfare, the real battle in which we're in. Here Paul writes to this church at Ephesus, a, a church that he had served in, a church that had uh, great beginnings. And uh, so he here encourages them to live in the light of who they were called to be. And here he is writing under circumstances in which he is in prison. And here in Ephesians 6, he is in prison and he writes these things looking at a probably chained to a Roman soldier that is next to him. And he speaks of the subject of the warfare that we are engaged in. In Ephesians chapter 6, our reading will come from verses 10 through 13 or 10 through 17. And it reads here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray before we begin our study of God's Word this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we pray that You would grant to us insight and understanding. And once again, Lord, that You would open our eyes, that we might see great and wonderful things from Your Word. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Last week I shared with you a little bit about a missionary whom I had was a substitute. I was substituting for him. His name is Jeremy Smith and uh, there's a picture of him up here. I asked David to put a picture of him. I had the opportunity to substitute teach for him as he is a teacher at the Pastoral Training Institute. And after our service, I'll share with you a little bit about the missions trips with some pictures. But here he is and his uh, family is in the next photo. And as you know from sharing last week, uh, he and his family on their uh, trip back to India, they were involved in a head-on car accident. And I wanted to just give you an update that they are uh, hospitalized. The children are doing well, but the parents are not quite so well. They successfully removed the bone fragments from his brain as it shattered part of his skull. And in an email update, the latest one I have, or one of the latest ones I have, it reads, quote, Thank you for your continued prayers for the Smiths. The Smiths' parents have arrived safely in Pune after more than 48 hours of travel. 
And the parents have both see, seen both Jeremy and Andrea in the hospital. Jeremy continues to have some infection in his lungs, resulting in him coughing a lot. He is using an oxygen mask to help with his oxygen intake. Please pray that the Lord will heal this infection. Andrea is very nauseous to the point of preventing her from sleeping. Please pray for healing from this so that she can rest. Thanks, David. The sacrifice of the students, as I shared with you last week in India, is great. They sacrifice a great deal for the sake of the gospel that they might learn the word of God. And it comes on the heels as, as uh, Peter was asking Jesus in Matthew 19. He said to the Lord, Behold, we have left everything for you. What will then there be for us? And Jesus tells him, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or mothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. And the first thing that the Lord had taught me last time I I shared with you was the idea of, of such a great sacrifice that came because of what people would give to simply know the word of God. And to teach the Word of God. And it was my admiration for these individuals because we here perhaps don't understand what it is to truly sacrifice all for the Lord and to treasure the Word of God as much as we ought to. The second thing that the Lord had taught me while I was there was the reality of spiritual warfare. Reality of spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And I, as I was thinking about this, in the culture in which we live here in the States, the culture in which we live here in the States, often Christianity might be seen as some sort of a self-improvement program. How can I make myself better so that I am happier, so that I am more comfortable, or whatever it might be. And we pray to God and we think that God is some type of God who is a benevolent type of bellhop who will come to our beck and call and help us out of our troubles. We're insensitive to the reality of which we live, and that is of a spiritual battle. For we as Christians, the thought of demonic possession, spiritual warfare, supernatural occurrences, all of those types of things seem to fade away in our consciousness of our, the reality of our Christian life, except when... Maybe Halloween comes around as it's coming in a few days and then people go and become scared through some movie and then it goes away again. Some are obsessed with it. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Screwtape Letters, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an obsessive and excessive unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs to hail a materialistic or magician with the same delight, unquote. The reality of it is, is that we as Christians, you see, are engaged as soldiers in a battle. It's not simply a quote-unquote religion to make my life better. We are called children of God in the Scriptures. We are called ambassadors of the King. That is who we are. We are called to be light and salt to the world. We are called to be lights shining in a dark world. We are called fellow workers with Christ. We are called co-heirs with Christ. A royal priesthood. We are called heirs of God. And we are pictured here as soldiers for Christ as well. 
Soldiers of God engaged in a spiritual battle. And not only does God know and see what we do, but so does our enemy. So does our enemy. The reality of that happened in the weekend that I was there because in a weekend that I was there to minister and those of you who don't know, I had the opportunity to go and teach in the Pastoral Training Institute for two weeks. In the weekend that I was there, Art Nakamura and I, a missionary friend of our church, we traveled to visit one of the PTI graduates who was planting a church in a very dark, spiritually dark city. And the city was called Nasik. It is considered one of the four holy sites in India, which every 12 years, millions, literally millions of people, Hindus, predominantly gather by the riverside to bathe themselves in a river, hoping to wash away their sins and to receive forgiveness of their sins. And the last time that they met was three years ago, in which an estimated six million people gathered to bathe themselves in this river. And it is a, one of the boasts to be one of the largest human gatherings in the world. You can t- see on, online, too, they've taken satellite photos of this gathering. It is so large. And they bathe themselves in this river hoping to receive forgiveness of the sins. And the city, Nasik, is called the city of temples. We left at 5 a.m. for a five-hour drive to travel to this city. And it's called the city of temples because all around you can see these temples that are, that are built and idols all over the place. And there are high places in which they build altars to their gods on the hills. And we went to visit this pastor who was uh, going to uh, be, be teaching and uh, going to be, uh, was planting a new church. And I was to preach in that church the next morning. So they housed me in the home of one of uh, the members of the church and the room that I was staying, I remember, was somewhat an older room, painted sort of a, a baby blue color with a black and white tile floor. It was an older home and the, 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 the bolts on the door were these deadbolt type things that you slide over and there were two doors, I remember, to the room. One to the outside balcony and one to the hallway. And as we entered the city, I remember it was such a dark city. And I'll show you pictures later of people who would be worshipping idols and so much lostness. The night that I stayed there, as I look back, something, something had happened. And I'm not sure... If it was all in my mind or something that was spiritually eerie. And even after I came back, I, I shared it with just a few people. I called uh, one of my professors and uh, talked to him about it. And I shared it with a couple of other people who are missionaries and found that perhaps it wasn't quite as uncommon or whatnot. But in the middle of the night, I remember waking up. And we're waking up and it was a... Uh, uh, an evening that was kind of restless. And I remember hearing right outside my door the, the footsteps, uh, uh, the heels of a, of a woman. And then on the balcony there was uh, footsteps of another, of another lady and a little kid or something like that. I could hear some of the noises that they were making. And seemingly as if she, she, she came into my, my room. Then... I felt my body on my bed being pressed down and I was immobilized and I couldn't move. I thought to myself, this is not normal. 
this is something that 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 just doesn't happen. And so, some what was it that was pinning me to my bed? What did I do? Well, the reality of it is, I think that there is there is a spiritual realm in which we deal. I'll tell you what happened next later on, but we choose as Christians to sometimes shut it out because we raised in a naturalistic kind of worldview. Everything is so scientific and explainable and sometimes the supernatural battle for the truth or for our souls is not a reality. Perhaps more of a reality in third world countries where there is darkness Paul speaks of this spiritual battle in this particular passage as he speaks in this this chapter here in chapter 6 about the reality of our warfare. For here in chapters 1 through 3, he tells the, the Ephesians, this is the life that you have. Who are you in Christ? You're a new creation in Christ. You are, you are born again. You were once a, a child of wrath, but now you're a child of God. You've been saved by grace and you have war, you are to walk now in chapter 4 in a manner that is worthy of the calling which you have received and the manner that you are to walk. And he begins in chapter 5 about how wives are to respond to their husbands, how husbands are to respond to their wives, how children are to obey their parents and how employees are to obey and follow their employers. Then he tells them about two issues that when it comes to the subject of spiritual warfare, what we're to do and why we're to do it. What we're to do, and first of all, we're to be strong and put on God's armor. Verses 10, 13, it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, Therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. We are in a spiritual battle when we engage the enemy. Paul tells us how to do it and it's vastly different than what some Christians advocate today. Some Christians will advocate speaking to them, binding them, casting out territorial spirits, performing exorcisms all over the place and all sorts of things. You can turn on the TV and watch people who will go and they will be praying and they'll address some demonic spirit and say, I bind you, whoever, and they'll, they'll think as if they have control over them. But the encouragement to Christians here, which is given by Paul and given by our Lord, is to be strong in God's strength. To be strong in the strength that God provides. Because spiritual warfare that occurs, occurs and it is fought first in holy and godly living. That relies on spiritual strength. Holy and godly living that relies on spiritual strength that God grants to us. For Paul reminds us in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who grants to me or who strengthens me. So what practically, what does that mean? To be strong in the strength that God provides. Means that we rely, for example, we rely on God's strength to trust God, to trust Him. We're so inclined to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, To be independent of God. But God desires that we learn to trust Him. And it is by God's spiritual strength that we learn in our hearts to trust Him, to walk with Him. It means that God helps us in in His spiritual strength to obey Him. 
How often is it that we have struggled in our own way to do our own thing? And God calls us to follow Him and to obey Him and to, and, to, and to trust Him for the future because of what He has commanded us in His Word. How often is it that we have faced perhaps a compromising situation in which we're called to do something and someone else wants us to do something else and the choice between doing what is wise and unwise requires us to rely on God to help We end up oftentimes justifying what we do rather than perhaps taking a stand for what is right and doing what is right and true. And so God grants to us strength, strength of heart, strength of boldness when we share our faith with others. As Paul even prays, he says later on, pray on my behalf in verse 19 to make known with boldness the mystery to make known with boldness. And so we rely on God's strength to help us to trust, to obey, to be bold, to live a holy and godly life. And in the text here, it tells us about what? Putting on the armor of God. Putting on the armor of God. Paul was under house arrest at the time of this writing. He was chained probably to a Roman guard and he uses perhaps the Roman guard that he sees there as a metaphor in in all of the things that he is wearing. And he uses this metaphor of the armor of God to describe what? Describe in the context as you see there in verses 14 to 17 with truth, righteousness, peace, the gospel of peace, shield of faith, he, he, the helmet of salvation, the Word of God, all of these things compose the armor of God. And they speak of a life that is clothed by these things with truth, with righteousness, with the bearing of the gospel of peace, with what? Knowing the Word of God, salvation, all in verses 14 to 17. That is the armor of God that we're to put on so that we can stand firm. So that we can stand firm, it says... Here in the text, it comes from the word histeme, which means against a, to take a firm stand, to take a position and not to let it go. Against the schemes of the devil means to take that critical position and not back off. The Bible doesn't say for us attack or charge or assault demonic forces. But it says what? To stand firm. It uses words like resist or stand your ground like in the NIV it says. And they are defensive. All of these items are defensive save one which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. In other words, you want to fight in the spiritual battle then prepare yourself well through the daily battle of godly living. Of holy living. Because the battle is daily that goes on in your heart and your life as you live a life of impact towards others. Stand strong in the strength that God provides. And you know that you're not standing and relying on God's strength. For example, if you don't call upon God in prayer. You know that you're not relying on God if you're thinking always in terms of what can I do or what can I accomplish. Or if God asks you to trust Him in something and you're not... Encouragement here is to live a life of righteousness, of godliness, of dependency on God. Why? Verses 11 to 12. 
It says, against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Some Christians seem to think that their greatest enemy is the Christian next door that bothers them, or maybe their coworker who really gets on their nerves, or that other student who really is an irritant to all the other classmates. Our enemy is... Though our primary enemy is the devil And his name is Satan And some deny the existence of Satan As a sort of a personification of evil I mean some people will teach that Well Satan doesn't exist He's a, he's a, he's a character here That is drawn up in the Bible So that it accommodates this idea of evil So to speak But Jesus here spoke of Satan In, in Matthew chapter 4 And other passages he was tempted in the wilderness and he spoke to him. And then there is Peter, James and John all write of him in the, gospel, in, in the New Testament of him being a, a personal being. Satan opposes God's work. He perverts his word. He appears as an angel of light. There's a description of him. If you turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel chapter 28. To know the enemy that... We battle against in Ezekiel chapter 28. We look at verses 12 through 19. This caricature of the king of Tyre is a relationship to a description of Satan and what happened. For it says in verse 12, God says, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. In the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, as I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Because of the sin of Satan and pride in his heart, he desired to take the place of God and God punished him and cast him from heaven. You see, Satan was originally created as a beautiful creature. It's a beautiful creature. So Halloween, when you see a, somebody running around in a little red suit with horns and a pitchfork, that probably looks nothing like what Satan looks like. Rather, he is described as an angel of light, but he is a deceiver. And so here we see that he was created as a beautiful creature, a creature who was in the Garden of Eden. And because of his sin, which filled his heart, God cast him out of heaven. In the Bible, he is called the ruler of demons, the ruler of this world, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. In fact, the name Satan means adversary. 
For he is called the devil, which means slander. He is called the father of lies. And he is our, he is our enemy. And he, what? Schemes against us, which is a word that carries the idea of craftiness and deception, to scheme against someone. It's often used a term as a, the term of a wild animal who cunningly stalked and then unexpectedly pounced on its prey. What do these schemes include? Well, one of the primary schemes uh, that Satan uses in his demons is not to jump out of some closet like Monsters, Inc. to scare little kids. His primary scheme is through false teaching, false thoughts, false philosophies and things like that. Whatever it might take for you to believe in the lie and not believe in the truth. Because if he can get you to buy into the lie, then you will be destined not for salvation. If he can get you to believe something that is false, And that is why continually in the Bible you'll see in the Old Testament that there is strict judgment for those who are false teachers, for those who are sorcerers or false uh, witches and those who deal with things like that. For they deceive. And there is terrible judgment. That is why the truth is so precious. That is why the Word of God is so precious and that you need to know and understand and love the Word of God because it guides us and it guides us in the way of life. Not only is Satan is our enemies, but our demons are enemies as well. As they are listed here, as we see in Ephesians chapter 12, or chapter 6, verse 12, rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places... Commentators and theologians see and understand this as, as, uh, as rankings, as uh, different uh, uh, organized strata or levels of authority, some sort of organization in the demonic realm. And the Bible speaks of these as being organized, these demons that are organized. The Bible also speaks of demons in the book of Revelation as some who are permanently bound And then there are others who are temporarily bound who will be released in the last days. And then there are some who are free, Satan's minions at this time. How many are there? Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 4 says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The symbol of the great red dragon is symbolic of Satan and it's believed in this passage that he swept away a third of the angels beginning of their creation and they followed him as demons. How many are there? We don't know, but we know that there are many for it speaks of angels in Revelation 5.11 that there are myriads and myriads or morion ton morion. In the Greek, it is the largest number for the Greek language. Ten thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. It means that there is a multitude of angels and a third of them of the original creation became demons. They are organized and opposed to the work of God. Our warfare, you see, is not against others in the physical realm, though it may seem like that. Our warfare in reality, in the scope of the big picture, is that against 
spiritual forces as we try to win people to Christ, to win them to holy living. And it causes us to think, now how do we fight in this battle? And Paul tells us here, you be strong in Christ in the strength of His might to live a godly life. And you put on these things such as righteousness and truth. Satan would like for you nothing less than to live how you want to live. He wants you to just live your own life, to do whatever you want. He wants you to be complacent, to be indifferent, to be apathetic. To say, I don't care about others, I care about me and I'm going to just mind my own business or whatever it might be to live a life of mediocrity. That is what he would, would please him. In our country, some have said perhaps it is God, Satan's tactic to, to allow us to have so much material things or to live in this naturalistic worldview where the supernatural is sort of disregarded. But God calls us and reminds us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the supernatural evil that is out there. And so we fight. We are to stand firm and to resist the devil and to live a godly life and to call win others to live according to the truth. So what happened? What happened to me? When I was there, there's very little I could do. And the Lord reminded me of His truth during that time. I began to think, and the scriptures that came to mind were simply, the Lord brought to mind Matthew 10:28, which says, Do not fear. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And to me... There is no fear of death in that. There's no fear of demonic possession of the Christian because the Scriptures don't teach that. I mean, some who are engaged in the spiritual warfare movement would teach, well, you know, you can be perhaps partially possessed, what they call demonized, or they say, well, uh, some spiritual force might have control over you and they'll go and suggest that they ought to exercise out of you a particular demon. And they use clinical type of suggestions, but there's no biblical support for that. They use clinical examples of things like that, of people they assume to be believers and try and cast out of you the demon of drug addiction or the demon of alcoholism or the demon of anxiety or the demon of overeating or whatever it might be. So for me, there was simply little I could do but to entrust my life to God. I remember I, this passage of Scripture and I began to sing. I began to sing and that's the first thing I did. Because I remember singing in my heart to God a hymn that, uh, that, that just entrusted myself to the Lord. And trust yourself to the faithful Creator. That's what Peter says. And so, my heart, that was the case. And if it were God's, if it were God's will that it was my time to go, that's fine too, I remember. Thinking, it doesn't really matter. Because a God is a God who is a sovereign God. And nothing will ever harm you or hurt you unless God should so allow. And God has, again, your good and His glory in mind. And no matter what happens in life, and so things, I just fell asleep. Well, what else could I do? But to think, we are but soldiers. Soldiers in a battle. The battle which is a spiritual battle for truth and godliness and life. To live a life that pleases God. 
To live a life of holiness. To live a life that is not one in which Satan would say, that's good, they're doing nothing for the kingdom. But to live a life in which we would perhaps might live that is a threat. That is a threat. Live a life that is pleasing to God. That God would look upon your life and smile. And smile because you're standing firm in the truth and doing as God would call you to do in life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how great you are. And Father, may we always be cognizant, Lord, of the reality of the world in which we live. Father, I know not what you know. So little, Father. We desire, Lord, to live a life that is pleasing to you. We pray, O God, that you would be pleased as we strive to live a holy life, a life that is one of truth. We pray, O Father, may you grant to us that strength to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.